You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Well, here we are at the end of April and Hong Kong has reported its earliest ever hot weather warning for the calendar year. Meanwhile, the geopolitical climate in the Pacific looks like it's reached simmering point. We're going to take a deep dive into what the Solomon Islands deal with Beijing means for the broader Pacific region with two expert analysts. One was a former diplomat posted to the Solomon Islands and the other is a geopolitics and security expert who tweeted out the leaked draft copy of that agreement last month. Was this deal Australia's greatest foreign policy failure amid its refusal to accept the existential threat of climate change in the Pacific? Or indeed, was it a triumph of Beijing's Belt and Road diplomacy and economic aid? But we're going to start by heading to Brussels for an update on the European Union from our man Finbar Birmingham. Important steps were taken this week by the EU in strengthening its choice of legislative weapons over trade aimed directly at China. He's also going to catch us up on why Xi Jinping delivered his personal congratulations to French President Emmanuel Macron upon his election win. And there's also the issue of the United Nations delegation landing in Guangzhou, mainland China, after almost four years of negotiation for a tour by the UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet. She's supposed to be heading to Xinjiang for an inspection. But as you'll hear from Finbar, conditions apply, but the least of which being Beijing's zero COVID policy. Let's get on with the show. Finbar Birmingham is back in Brussels after a brief sojourn to the green pastures of Fermanagh. But Finbar, before I ask you about the EU, can I just get you to recap the interest shown by Xi Jinping in the election result in France and the victory for Emmanuel Macron? Yes, uh, I think so. So Macron won uh, quite comfortably in the end, closer than four, five years ago, but uh, he beat uh, Le Pen uh, quite comfortably last Sunday. And then on Monday, he received a call from Xi Jinping congratulating him on his victory. Um, look, there are t- two schools to th- Two schools of thought as to what China wanted from this election. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, a Le Pen victory would have weakened the European Union. It would have weakened the European democracy project. It would have been akin to the Trump shock, uh, Brexit, you know, and in the long t- term, a lot of people think that that's kind of good for China. Maybe anything that sort of weakens the Western alliance is something that Beijing won't really argue with. The other point is, though, Macron is very popular in China. He is loved by Chinese elites, academics often write quite favorably about him because he pursues, he is the the champion of the European Union's strategic autonomy um, concept, which I wonder sometimes if it's kind of misconstrued in China. Um, Strategic autonomy is, uh, I guess, broadly speaking, a European endeavor to plow its own furrow, independent of of other actors, the United States and China, um, to to have a sovereign Europe, uh, which is is strong and self-sufficient in its own right, security and defense, trade and, and many other issues. Um, 
often I think that it's writ it's read in China as, as as being essentially against the United States, so therefore good for China, which is a little bit of a wishful thinking. Um, it's about building a strong Europe, um, but but nonetheless, uh, she was uh, was was on the phone to Macron to congratulate him. You know whether or not you think that they would have prepared, preferred Le Pen. I don't think Macron is a terrible um, choice of a, as French leader um, for China. You know as he's proven with his um, forays with Russia, he he very much pursues diplomatic channels. He is pro engagement. He will try and strengthen the European defence arsenal, the, the the trade weaponry, and so on. But you know he's a person that China can deal with. Um, so yeah, that was that was uh, very early on in the, after the election. Uh, she was in touch. Um, you know, so uh, I think it's um, business as usual. I'm not sure there's going to be a massive shift in French China policy. China didn't feature really at all in the election, which was overshadowed by by Russia. Uh, France has its own domestic issues as ever. You know, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, workers' rights. You know, the cost of living crisis. I mean, we are here in, in Europe and we're facing. I had my gas reader meter read on on Tuesday, and I've been warned that the, the gas bill is probably going to be triple what we what we expected, and that's just um, a little anecdote that sort of shows you you how high our prices are going to be rising here in Europe, largely because of of of, of dependence on Russia. So all these issues superseded China. It wasn't really an issue, but you know, geopolitics geopolitics were, and you know, the the, the sort of pushback against Russia. Um, this framing of the the the, the future of 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 the Western uh, politics as as being a sort of Democrats versus autocrats, primarily aimed at at Russia, but by extension, obviously that's going to you know China is logically going to going to follow. So, wasn't a big factor, but obviously in the background on on all these things. Finbar, you rightly point out that Europe has some really big issues on its plate right now. There is the energy shock and price shock from Russia's ban on gas exports. There is, of course, Russia's war on Ukraine. But there's been some very important steps taken in the EU's trading relationship with China this week. What's happened? Yeah, I think it's it's more general than, than the EU's trade relationship with China. What we're seeing is the fast tracking of some of these trade weapons that the EU has been developing for a long, long time, um, seemingly without direction, for without any sort of great urgency for, for years. But it seems as though they're coming together. Now, if you think about about maybe 14, 15 months ago, we had just the experienced the, the signing of the CAI and the commission was under huge pressure to show that, that they're also doing other things that aren't sort of engaging with China um, that there are also developing tools which are sort of t- tackling the, the perceived issues uh, with, with regard to China's economic model and we're starting to see the fruits of that now now on Monday we had uh, votes in the European Parliament on the international procurement in- instrument and the foreign subsidies law. These are both in, in draft form, although they're very advanced. We're going to see them probably this year, I would I would guess, although these things do tend to drag out a wee bit. International procurement instrument sounds very dry. It is quite dry, but, but what it is in a nutshell is uh, a rule that would uh, pr- 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 
sorry, preclude uh, foreign companies from participating in open European tenders unless the procurement markets are open in their own countries. So that would be aimed at China, which doesn't have an open procurement market for European firms. Uh, The foreign subsidies law would require any firm operating within the European Union to declare publicly what subsidies it has received from its government again aimed at China. Alongside that, you have the anti-coercion instrument, which we've discussed before, which would allow the European Union some recourse um, to deal with countries who are, for political or other reasons, uh, punishing or you know coercing uh, EU member states. You know, the case of Lithuania being, being, being a prime example of that. There are others too. Uh, alongside that, you have a potential forced labour ban which again, the EU is, is determined to say it's not aimed at China, uh, but this is something which has clearly got Xinjiang in mind where there are allegations of forced labour that the Chinese deny. Um, now, that's uh, going to be in draft form. They're aiming to have a proposal ready for mid-September. That's going to coincide with the State of the Union speech by Ursula von der Leyen. She announced this last September during her last State of the Union to the, to the surprise of everybody. Nobody knew it was coming. This is an example of the freelancing which von der Leyen t- tends to do these days. She rocked up in India um, this week and I was reliably informed this week that, um, that members of her, her trade department didn't even know she was going there. Um, so she, she announced this trade and technology council with the with the Indians without having really consulted her trade experts in advance. So you know it's it's a bit of a weird situation that I suppose. Um, look, what we're seeing is this toolkit that the EU has been talking about for a long time now, starting to to develop, starting to look like it's it's coming closer um, to reality. Um, and I'm not quite sure, I'm trying to find out a bit, wee bit more about this, but whether they've really taken into the calculus how China might react to this, which of course they will. Um, you know, the anti-coercion instrument in particular will probably not down very well in Beijing. They've spoken out quite, quite strongly against these tools. Um, not quite sure what they will do in response. One Chinese expert was telling me this week that they probably will file a WTO case, which may or may not work. The European Union is developing these tools with the WTO in mind. They want to ensure compatibility. I've seen a draft of the anti-coercion instrument this week, which has changed a wee bit since the the original uh, proposal was launched, mainly to make it more WTO compatible. So they have this in mind. So I'm sure the Chinese have plenty of other irons in the fire. They're not just going to recourse to the WTO. There will be other um, things that they can do in response. But, you know, there seems to be a little bit of hubristic attitude in Brussels that, you know, this is a big market for China. They need us. They, you know, won't do anything to to, to, to retaliate. But I'm not so sure about that. We'll, we'll see in time. But, you know, those those um, those measures are all gathering speed now. And I'll, I'll be publishing a big story about that next week. You mentioned Xinjiang there, Finbar, and you've also reported on something that's been negotiated since September 2018 that happened this week. And that was when a United Nations team touched down in Guangzhou ahead of the UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet and her plans to visit Xinjiang. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the team's in quarantine, uh, which is, is an interesting development in itself. Uh, this is, as you say, a long negotiated um, visit um, to check out the human rights conditions in China. 
Um, there's a lot of scepticism about this. For a start, the fact that the team has to quarantine, they won't tell us how long they have to quarantine. If you look at the rules governing quarantine in Guangzhou, about a month, um, and then they have to go to Xinjiang after that, are they going to have to quarantine again? You know, we don't know. There hasn't been any sort of itinerary announced, although they say that they don't announce these itineraries because they're supposed to, they're supposed to be sacred, right? They're supposed to be able to go and speak to whoever they want. But given the COVID situation in China, I find it hard to believe that these people are going to be able to walk around at various outposts in Xinjiang without supervision from the Chinese government. COVID is a very convenient excuse to make sure that they're not just dandering into whichever house in Korla or Kashgar or Urumqi that they want to. Um, but look, um, we're probably going to see Bachelet travel there in May. At least that was the targeted date. Um, plenty of people think it won't happen and that COVID may be a sort of an excuse for it not to happen. She doesn't seem very keen on this. You know, she's sitting on a, a human rights report into Xinjiang that has been reliably informed, ready for the best part of a year. She hasn't released it. Our own Catherine Wong reported in January that there was a sort of a quid pro quo struck between the UN Human Rights Commission and the Chinese government that Bachelet could visit after the Olympic Games, so long as she didn't release the report. Um, you know, and the, the, the visit was was not to be billed as an inspection. It was to be billed as a friendly visit. And, you know, it doesn't fill me with confidence that it's going to be, you know, a really deep fact-finding mission. Let's see whether they release the report on the back of this. Maybe if they get the visit out of the way, then they can release the report. One thing to keep an eye on is that the clock is ticking. Bachelet leaves office in September unless she extends her term. You know, some cynical observers speculate that this, you know, the COVID situation, the quarantine situation, and the fact that she's leaving office means that she might not visit at all. Uh, you know, which would be a bit of a, of an anticlimax after all these years of of everybody pushing her to go there. Look, it's 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 speculation, but let's see. At this point, it will be really fascinating to see what sort of access these guys have. There hasn't been an inspection since well for seventeen years. You know, so if this one isn't done properly, are we going to be waiting 17 years for, for the next one? This is one of the few UN offices, that UN departments that doesn't have an office in China. You know, it doesn't really have a great relationship with the Communist Party for perhaps understandable reasons. But we're watching very closely. Um, you know, I broke that story on Monday and I'm trying to sort of find out a wee bit more about it for, for, for the coming weeks. But, but watch this space. Finbar Birmingham, as always, it sounds like you've got a very full dance card. We'll watch for your stories up on scmp.com and follow you on Twitter at FBirmingham. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Now, before we start talking about the Solomon Islands and its deal signed with Beijing, have a listen to what Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare had to say in the parliament in Honiara today. Now, I won't play you all of it because this speech goes for two and a half hours long. A wide-ranging speech, yes it was, but he made a very pointed reference both to the security deal signed by Australia with the UK and the US and one of the reasons why his nation pursued a deal with Beijing. As you all have heard from the Minister of Finance, Mr Speaker, the cost of November rides is around $800 million. 1,000 jobs were lost, 
and many more livelihood of our people affected. What does that tell you, Mr. Speaker? Evidently, it is apparent that the security agreement with Australia has not managed to prevent the, and contain the November riots, Mr. Speaker. As a sovereign country that is responsible for the well-being of our people and the economy of our, of our country, we have to look elsewhere. Dr Anna Pools is a specialist in geopolitics and security in the Pacific Islands region and is a senior lecturer with the Centre of Defence and Security Studies at Massey University in New Zealand. And if I'm right, Dr Pools, you're also the person who happened upon a draft copy of this security deal between Beijing and the Solomon Islands and tweeted it to the world last month. Is that correct? That is correct. But just to qualify that, uh, I should add that it had been, I should preface that uh, with the fact that it had been leaked on social media, on a uh, Facebook group, uh, prior to my sharing it on Twitter. Well, can I begin by asking what you've made of the media coverage of the news this past week? The Australian media seems to have decided a Chinese Navy base is all but completed at Honiara, and China's Foreign Minister Wang Wenbin has utterly rejected this. What is your analysis of this leaked pact agreement that you've read? Okay, so I think it's a really good starting point. Uh, and the leaked security agreement, the draft agreement, which we can assume uh, is fairly close to the signed version. Uh, certainly uh, Danny Phillips, Solomon Islands uh, politician and advisor, said in, uh, in a webinar about a week ago that it was very close to it. In terms of what it contains, uh, it's fairly broad uh, in scope, uh, fairly ambitious, uh, but also fairly ambiguous too. I think the, the, the key points of it is that, as you know, it allows for, with the permission of uh, and by invitation of Solomon Islands government, for China to deploy security personnel at the request of uh, Solomon Islands government, including to uh, protect Chinese assets and nationals uh, infrastructure to provide, to maintain social order, public law order. Uh, and there's also a clause in there, a provision in there around the develop the capacity for logistical replenishment of Chinese vessels uh, in Solomon Islands, which is what's raised the spectre of a potential naval base uh, in Solomon Islands. And that has, of course, captured the attention of Western leaders and, and the media particularly, not least because this is election time in Australia. Indeed. And just referring to that, we've heard the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison warn the signing of the agreement was a, quote, red line, uh, and then refused to say what that meant. And we've since seen the US and Japan send their diplomats in, but no one seems to have asked why the Solomon's government has signed this deal and what other nations in the region think about this. What are your sources telling you? Yeah, that's a really important question, and it's been it's been really missed in a lot of the the the, the media coverage. Uh, is why have why, why did Prime Minister Manasseh Sogovare sign this agreement? Um, and and that's something that 
journalists and commentators in Solomon Islands have really tried to bring out into the into the, the the broader debate actually is a more nuanced sense of of why this has happened uh, and what the implications are. And certainly, you know, there are there is strong concern within the country uh, about this agreement about the lack of transparency, about uh, what it could potentially mean in terms you know, of having Chinese security personnel deployed into the Solomon Islands, which is already a uh, very dynamic, at times unstable environment, as we saw with the riots in November last year and then previous incidences, and then, of course, the tensions between 1998 and 2003. And in terms of, so, so the loudest voices in the room have really been Australian and and the US with these statements about responding accordingly, as US Indo-Pacific coordinator Kurt Campbell said uh, when he visited Honiara, uh, and and then of course uh, with Scott Morrison's red line. But in terms of what other the rest of the region is saying, uh, it's been fairly muted. New Zealand has made the prime minister and the foreign minister have made some very strong statements about this, they have raised their concerns that it is potentially disruptive, that it would disrupt and undermine and degrade regional security. And a number of Pacific Island countries have also raised their concerns. Tonga, for example, has asked, requested that it be on the agenda uh, at the next Pacific Island Forum Leaders Meeting. Uh, another Pacific leader has written an open letter to um, Prime Minister Sokovare. So there's certainly regional concern there. And I wonder how does this fit within the broader region and this what looks like a competition to put bases on islands? We've seen a new military base funded by the US and Australia in Fiji. Do you see a, a race to secure strategic partnerships and basically real estate in the region? I, I certainly think. I mean, there is an element to that, uh, and 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 actually, when issue when concerns were raised about potential uh, about Beijing pursuing a base or a dual purpose wharf uh, in Vanuatu several years ago, at the time the New Zealand Prime Minister made the statement that New Zealand opposed all militarization of the Pacific. Um, islands region and that that position very much stands and there is concern that strategic competition could be very disruptive uh, to the region we've we've been there before um, certainly you know World War II is the obvious example so Dr. Poole I want to refer to Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasa Sogavare's comments in the Solomon Islands Parliament today he made in a very extensive address specific reference to the AUKUS agreement, the secret pact mm. signed between Australia, UK and US and compared that with his sovereign nation signing a deal with another sovereign nation being the People's Republic mm. of China. What do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, Prime Minister Sogovare is a it's very savvy, very uh, um, mercurial uh, and intelligent politician. And he was making some, so that, that speech that he gave there was messaging both to uh, his political constituency, to the people of Solomon Islands, uh, as well as uh, more broadly. And he was making that 
a reference to the, the way in which uh, AUKUS was sprung upon the region uh, and, and also on the Australian people as well. And he also made a, a really, I thought, quite interesting uh, statement uh, about comparing the reactions to those the two agreements, but to AUKUS and to the PRC Solomon Islands uh, Security Agreement, uh, and he and he talks about you know that Solomon Islands and perhaps the Pacific more broadly. I'm not sure if he was speaking for the region, but so that you know we d- we did not become a theor- theatrical or hysterical about the implications for for us because we respect Australia's decision. And then I thought you know really um, very cleverly he then makes a statement that. He's glad to say that Australia, the United States and Japan respected Solomon Island sovereignty into entering this security agreement with China as well. So he's sending a message to his people, to his political constituency uh, that actually this agreement uh, is been respected, that Solomon Island sovereignty has been respected. So he's playing with a number of different um, uh, messages there, uh, as he does. But I think what's important about this is that it does speak to some of the issues that arose in the region around the time of AUKUS and concerns particularly that so much uh, focus and an effort was being put into agreements like this into strategic competition to counter China. Uh, and yet the number one security concern for the Pacific is climate change. Uh, and I believe it was the Fijian Prime Minister, Frank uh, Banimarama, who made the comment at the time that essentially if you can invest this much into, into strategic competition, then you can invest it into climate change. And certainly Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sogavare is, I would say, possibly positioning himself as as a strong man in the region. I'm very interested that you raised that point about Fiji and Pacific nations and climate change. It is the one issue that the Australian government refuses to discuss with the United Nations, let alone their neighbours in the Pacific. Do you feel this really brings out the contrast Whereas, you know, the Australian government idea of security is missiles, aircraft, people in khaki. But for Pacific nations, their idea of security is much more existential. Well, absolutely. And we have to remember, too, that the Pacific Islands Forum Regional uh, Boy Declaration on Regional Security, which was signed in 2018, Australia is a signatory to that declaration. And it does state that climate change is the existential threat to the Pacific. Now, below that political rhetoric level, you know, there's there is strong uh, there's strong concern within Australia around climate change. I mean, it's 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 played out in Australia itself with the bushfires, the floods, and, and so forth. It's not an election issue, though. Uh, China is, is, is the election issue, really, uh, and, and Solomon Islands. And, and that's very, very telling. And the concern from the Pacific for a long time has been that, you, and I paraphrase here, I'm not speaking for anyone in particular, but there's an expectation that Pacific countries will sign up to the security considerations and priorities of its closest partners, New Zealand and Australia, and yet there is that tension, that contradiction there, where their primary security concerns uh, are not fully appreciated. So, Dr Poole, how do you see this playing out? Will the other Pacific nations watch very carefully 
to see mm. how this plays out in choosing their strategic way forward? And is it a case of they have to pick a side or is there a middle road where you can accept Chinese economic development as well as aid from Australia, New Zealand and the US? That middle road is certainly the path uh, Pacific countries, those that recognise China, because uh, obviously not all do for recognised Taiwan. Um, that middle road is, is, is certainly the line that the Pacific Islands Forum has taken, that Pacific leaders have taken, that China is about opportunity. And, and there's, there has you know, a clear preference that their main security relationships, their main security partnerships are with Australia and New Zealand. And there has been for a long time a sense of and some clear statements from Pacific leaders that they shouldn't actually have to choose uh, between the two. I would suggest that, yes, uh, a lot of leaders, both at the state and the subnational level, will be watching uh, Prime Minister Sogovare uh, and the way in which he has fairly successfully leveraged strategic concerns I mean, he he successfully managed to get two top Australian intelligence chiefs, a minister, and a US uh, leading statesman uh, to, and then senior Japanese ministers to fly to Honiara in fairly quick succession uh, with a number of of deals on the table. And regardless of how you know, successful those those deals necessarily are, he has demonstrated very acutely the ability for Pacific leaders to leverage uh, geopolitical issues into their favour. It looks like a lot more to come on this issue. And no doubt I'll be tracing you down for another interview. Dr. Anna Poole, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Mihai Sora is a research fellow in the Pacific Islands program at the Lowy Institute in Australia and was also a diplomat formally posted to the Solomon Islands. Mihai Sora, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Jared. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Can I begin by asking the question I posed to our senior correspondent, Maria Siao, last week? And that is, is this security pact between Beijing and the Solomon Islands a failure of Australian foreign policy or a triumph of a Chinese belt and road diplomacy? I think the security pact is an opportunity for Australia to take a really hard look at its relationships with the Pacific. I think it's a test of Australian diplomacy. Um, you know, it's debatable how much Australia's engagement with the Pacific has been focused on strategic denial of China. So for those people that see Australia's engagement through that lens, then demonstrably such a deal presents a failure. But Australia's connection to the Pacific, uh, I feel, is much broader than that. So it really is an opportunity to better understand what Australia's expectations are of the region and what the region's expectations are of Australia. With regards to uh, the, the sort of the Chinese dividends from, from such a deal, um, it, it does feed into this narrative of a strategic intent in the region. So we saw an economic presence and uh, uh, strengthening political relationships across the Pacific. And now there's a security dimension to this relationship with Solomon Islands. So in that way, um, if that narrative is, is coherent, then it does um, obviously present a, a success towards those strategic objectives. So how did you see this issue play out in Australian politics and media this week? Do you think the Solomon Islands 
were given a fair voice? Or is this all about, you know, the big brother, the, the patriarch, Australia kind of dictating to the Pacific? I think there are numerous dimensions to this issue. Obviously, there's the domestic political uh, dimension within Solomon Islands, and um, it, it's it's quite well understood now that um, Prime Minister Sogabare's um, closer relationship with Beijing has not gone, um, you know, is not without controversy within Solomon Islands. So certainly, domestically, there is um, that that sort of that debate about. Is this a security deal for Solomon Islands or is it a security deal for Prime Minister Sotobari's government? In Australia, um, the the immediate uh, reflection on the development is, is how does it affect Australia and how's it, how does it affect Australia's role in the region? So a lot of the commentary has been focused on uh, the big picture strategic implications. And I think, you know, given that Australia is right now in an election period, it certainly has been swept up into the broader narrative of what national security means for Australia, um, connected to what is Australia's relationship with China. Um, you know, there are structural factors that can make it difficult to, to give enough space or to identify enough Solomon Islands voices. Certainly, you know, those media links uh, between Australia or really between the international community and Solomon Islands and, and more broadly the Pacific, they could be strengthened. You know, there, there's definitely more, more room there. And having stronger links obviously makes it easier for the Solomon Islands voices to come out. Um, Australian journalists have made an effort where they can to identify Solomon Islands voices. And I think we do have some of that content, but um, perhaps understandably the, the focus for an Australian audience has been how does it affect Australia? But it really is important to move beyond that as quickly as we can and to understand that this is an issue that affects Solomon Islanders uh, directly. It's happening in, in their country. Um, and so giving an opportunity to, to Solomon's voices and to Pacific voices is vitally important. Now, this week we saw the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison declaring this treaty between Honiara and Beijing as a, quote, red line. And that phrase was used as well by the U.S. diplomatic team that visited Honiara belatedly. Some have inferred that is a threat of Australian military intervention or U.S. military intervention. What do you think the broader Melanesian Pacific community thought about this red line comment and what it says about Solomon Island sovereignty? I think language like red lines are... Uh they're, they're very tricky to use in, in politics and in diplomacy. And my sense is that that sort of language hasn't gone down well in Melanesia or in the rest of the Pacific. And it, you know, it does need to be unpacked in the sense of what is that red line? And, and if you articulate a red line, you know, do you have the capability to, to carry out whatever that implied response is? And I do think in the context of Australia uh, reconsidering what its relationships are with the Pacific, that sort of language probably serves as a barrier to having frank um, and, and sort of honest exchanges. I'm wondering what comes next for Australia in its role as provider of aid in the region. I note that in the last two months, more than 225 million Australian dollars have been spent on sending arms and and arms and ammunition to Ukraine. 
the entirety of Australia's aid to Solomon Islands in the year 2019 to 2020 is $50 million less than that. It was $170 million Australian dollars. Do you think this is going to have a tangible impact? Is there any way that Australia can try and, you know, exert influence without looking like an angry kind of colonial influence in the region? Look, I, for one, would welcome an increase uh, in the aid budget, uh, particularly the, the aid um, the development program that, that um, engages in the Pacific. The two political sides right now in, in Australia's elections, you know, there, there have been these, these efforts to demonstrate this, this commitment to development cooperation in the Pacific. We have the broader, uh, the broader context of Australia's aid program diminishing over, over the last few years. That said, the Pacific as a region, as a part of that development program, has been largely shielded um, and, in fact, you know, has enjoyed uh, an increased proportion of, of aid. What I'd like to see going forward is, um, you know, less of this zero-sum calculation about if we provide uh, support to, to, to this global context, um, does that mean that we have less for the Pacific? Really, what I want to see is the conversation moving beyond uh, engaging with the Pacific purely through aid. Um, certainly what uh, relations with China can bring to the Pacific is it, it's not um, it's not the same sort of development cooperation that, that Australia brings. So um, I, I think it's a bit of a trap to say Australia provides more aid to the Pacific than China does, therefore we should have more influence. Clearly that's that's not the case. It's it's not a um, a direct exchange between between aid and, and influence. I think what, you know, what I hope to see for the region is more creativity um, in how Australia engages with the Pacific. So looking at um, improving people-to-people links. So um, a, a visa class, for example, that allows pathways to migration, partnering with businesses to develop, to, de- to deliver programs, um, projects that, that have, you know, that deliver critical infrastructure, but that potentially also have a strategic dividend in the sense of increasing regional security. And some of this will be will be aid money, but it, it's not um, it's not something that Australia can do alone. So I think it does need to partner with other countries like the US, Japan, New Zealand, UK, France, um, to to maximize the resources that it can bring to bear. So that might not require an increased aid budget, but it certainly requires increased resources and also partnering with, with business, with technology companies, you know, digital connectivity and that infrastructure that underpins digital connectivity is so vitally important. And the Pacific, um, it really needs that. It needs that to connect to the global marketplace. It needs that to better connect to global conversations um, and even in, to have um, to enable a more active voice on on geopolitical issues or regional issues such as what we're discussing today. What comes next for you? What are you watching in this discussion? Do you see it broadening out into a bigger discussion about influence in Fiji, Kiribati, all these other island nations that make up that kind of Pacific neighbourhood as it's referred to in Australia? Or does it zero in on the Solomon Islands? And we've already seen one minor Australian politician try and paint this as Australia's Cuba. How do you see this discussion unfolding? Australia has to broaden the conversation. Um, the security deal between um, Solomon Islands and China, that, that is 
a deal between two parties. And, and it's an issue that ha, has, is politically relevant for Prime Minister Sabavari, strategically relevant for China. But to, for Australia to really, to really understand how it can project influence, how it can project is probably the wrong word. It's really about earning that influence and building that influence. The conversation has to expand beyond Solomon Islands. And that's not from, from a risk perspective of identifying where are the vulnerabilities, where are the, the potential um, security deals that, that have not yet been leaked that, that might pop out. They may very well be out there, but that, that doesn't solve the, the fundamental question of what is Australia's role in the Pacific? What is Australia's connection to the Pacific? And what does the Pacific want to see for itself? And what does it expect from Australia? So, you know, the Pacific will have these conversations. And if Australia doesn't broaden its, its perspective and its horizons, those conversations will happen without it. I'll leave it to the, the security analysts to, to analyze how to mitigate against the strategic risks of increased Chinese presence and, and what the shape of that might be. But really, this is a question about Australia's relationship with the Pacific, not just with Solomon Islands. And potentially Beijing's increasing interest in the region as well. Mihai Sora, we will look for your further posts on social media and with the Lowy Institute. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jared. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's all for this week's China Geopolitics podcast. As ever, as always, there's so much going on and so much changing around the clock. You are reminded to check in on our 24-hour newsroom at scmp.com for the latest updates and analysis. Follow our political economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. I'm at Jay Watt. My name's Jared Watt. Until next week, stay safe. Bye for now.